We're making it easier to listen to the World Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The Civil War, as everyone listening to this program knows, cost some 620,000 lives. But it had other costs as well, physical costs in the landscape, cities, buildings, forests, destroyed, or preserved in some cases as ruins, as souvenirs, as mementos. How the war affected America's psychic and physical landscape will be our topic today with Megan Kate Nelson, author of Ruin Nation, Destruction, and the American Civil War, today on Civil War Talk Radio. Follow us on Twitter at World Talk Radio. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University. But as always, not speaking for the university or the UNC system or anybody else. Not our new interim dean, not anybody, just me, and our guest likewise will speak only for herself today, as is always the case uh, here on Civil War Talk Radio. Well, it is a uh, cloudy Friday in June of 2013. A tropical storm is bearing down on Greenville, North Carolina, but we're not too concerned. supposed to rain a little, No, not major damage expected, and I hope that's the case. We'll see how it interferes with the coming trip next week. Uh, Matterhorn travels uh, this uh, this hallowed ground is the name of it, a uh, uh, history tourism venture that I'm serving as the traveling lecturer on. Looking forward very much to getting away from campus for a week and going to battlefields in Northern Virginia and Maryland and Pennsylvania and talking to people for a a solid week about history and 
uh, not one of them will ask me if they can have a teaching release in the fall or uh, if they can get more travel money because the answer is always no uh, when I do get those questions and uh, it, it's not fun to have to tell my colleagues I can't give them things they deserve but it'll be nice to get away and, and have a, a week's vacation just as this show is a 60 minute vacation for, uh, for me each week and for a lot of our guests it'll be nice to focus on what, what I like to think I really do uh, which is history but uh, we will be back uh, therefore with, we will not have a live show next week I'll be on the road on June 14th, but we'll be back June 21st with Jake Borat uh, of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, filmmaker who's working on a, a film called The Gettysburg Story and uh, has an interesting story to tell about that. He'll also hopefully bring along his father, uh, Gabor Borat, uh, the longtime director of the Civil War Studies Institute at Gettysburg College and author of numerous books on the era. Then uh, in the fall, then we'll be taking the usual summer hiatus and coming back in the fall. But there will be differences, uh, big changes, winds of changes are coming to Civil War talk radio. Uh, most notably, it looks like as of uh, probably the beginning of July, we will have a different time slot. Now, this does not affect you if you listen to this as a podcast, if you download it. Uh, after after we're done, but if you're listening live, instead of going out at Fridays, uh, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, we'll be moving to Wednesdays at 7 p.m. This does concern you, of course, if you listen live, and I know there are at least uh, two or three of you who do that. Uh, most notably, the show's number one consultant, uh, my mother, who does listen and uh, provide helpful critiques each week. But as she has pointed out to me, uh, 7 p.m. Wednesday conflicts with both Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune. Uh, so it may cut deeply into the show's listenership in terms of the live audience. We'll have to just deal with that when it happens. Um, but if you're downloading, it shouldn't be a problem. In other, uh, related to that is the fact that uh, the show will move from World Talk Radio to Voice America. Uh, one website to another. The links will be updated. Uh, things will be changed around, so it'll be more uh, accessible and modern. Apparently, I, I don't know how that all works. World Talk Radio was acquired by Voice America at some point some years ago, and I just kept my head down and doing kept doing the show. But uh, they had to find a new time slot to move the show over to the Voice America main station. The if they'd left it where it was, the adjacent shows were, uh, one of them was, was about sex advice. And I know uh, I would be, if, if not you, the uh, cultivated listener, would be uncomfortable with some of the uh, things we'd be hearing about, uh, not quite ready for that. So appropriately, it's being moved to a slot where it's next to a, a show by an archaeologist, uh, an Indiana Jones sort of uh, program, I'm told, which is much more appropriate. Uh, but in moving to Voice America, this also raises the question of funding the show. And I, I won't trouble you too long, listeners, with this issue. But when we started back in 2004, this was a temporary project, a, a loss leader for this brand new pro project of, of talk radio on the internet. Uh, a new company that was starting it, and they uh, 
set up a Civil War-themed show without much of an idea who would do it or what it would be like. And after a few other guests, a few other hosts tried it, I ended up volunteering to do one, and one has become now 215 or so. But it was a volunteer project. I enjoyed doing it. They enjoyed putting it on. It gave them some content in the early years. Uh, Voice America and World Talk Radio have become apparently quite successful and they have many shows. We hear commercials for them doing all kinds of interesting things, improving people's lives. Uh, ask the, the commercial for one of them asks, you know, who doesn't want to have a better life? And I think that is a rhetorical question. Uh, but the show apparently must be popular, must work. And the hosts for these shows pay for them, uh, pay quite a surprising amount of money uh, to put on the shows. And in turn, they sell commercials which allow them to fund the shows and everybody's happy the advertiser gets to advertise the show host keeps the commercial income and uh, world talk radio or voice america gets gets paid for the engineer and the website and the equipment everything that makes the show possible i don't pay uh because that that wasn't how this thing started and i, I couldn't afford to pay to do this along with the time that i give but the time may come when World Talk Radio figures out that I'm like the only remaining free host on the show after 10 years. Next year will be the 10th season. And the time may come when uh, we will have to pony up and the Civil War Book Fund will have to get serious and become the Civil War Voice America Fund and we'll have to actually, I'll have to badger you weekly to collect uh, something. Alternatively, uh, if you or anyone you know sells anything that would be of interest to this audience and value, not just something, but something that would add content to the show, uh, Civil War-related, uh, history-related products, uh, services, anything like that, we should talk about advertising. I learned to my surprise when I got the call about moving the show that our listenership for and I was given a random show. The listenership for November 2011 uh, for one show was about 130,000 listeners uh, over time, not all at once. I was quite surprised uh, to know that we had that many people listening to Civil War talk radio. Uh, certainly happy that you're doing so. But it does mean that this could actually be a useful thing if there's a fledgling Civil War enterprise related civil war related enterprise that wants to get off the ground uh and contacting them through the show would help and you've got some money to put up front we can make something work out so those are the changes coming uh, in the future in the meantime keep listening things will be uh essentially the same from your end i hope uh, when we come back in the fall lou major will be our first guest on uh, august 30th the written the real war will not get in the books also uh, Lincoln's first hundred days. On September 6th, Tom Huntington will talk about his journey in search of General Meade, the general who only defeated Robert E. Lee and yet is unknown to Americans today outside the listeners of this program. Uh, he'll be on. And I'll note that he was a listener suggestion, uh, followed up by an email from a different listener who asked why we don't have the guts to talk about General Lee on this show. And I have to say I was taken aback because I didn't think there was any element of guts in the show that, that offering a particular inter, 
interpretation of the Civil War doesn't require any courage necessarily. You just think about the evidence and then you speak your mind. Uh, I don't think I was cowering in a corner of afraid to mention general need, but uh, if that's how it's perceived, so be it. Nonetheless, uh, uh, the book looks interesting, and uh, I'll read it over the summer. You can do the same, and we will talk about it on September 6th. So, all these things are going on. Please contribute, if you would, to the Civil War Book Fund, uh, which shortly will be out of books, so it will become the Civil War Talk Radio donation from the bottom of your heart fund. And find out about all of this and more on impedimentsofwar.org. Mark Gaffney is learning, as you are for the first time, about all these changes. Uh, and I'll be in touch with him to help update the website. But uh, in the meantime, let's move on forward to uh, today's guest. I've taken too long telling you the talk radio news. And uh, we have a really interesting book uh, by Megan Kate Nelson of Harvard University. Uh, Professor Nelson, are you there? Indeed, yes. Ah, thank you for uh, joining me today. It's always good to have somebody from Harvard on the show uh, because, as as longtime listeners know, I never miss an opportunity to remind them that I also have a Harvard degree. And That's if I'm right. going to get anything out of it, it's going to be mentioning it on the air. Uh, <laughs> so that that's that's my payback. Uh, <laughs> Well, I'm I'm sitting here in Boston staring out at the rain because I've got the northern end of, of Tropical Storm Andrea uh, here. Well, so we are united it's by going meteorology. To be All up and down the East Coast. So <laughs> you're, um, I'm looking at the back of the book. It says you're in the, the History and Literature program, and I'm trying to imagine if anyone is still there uh, in, I guess it's been almost 20 years since I was there, uh, is that the, connected with the Warren Center? Uh, uh, the Warren Center is connected with the History of American Civilization PhD program, um, okay. and then also the History Department. It's sort of a dual thing. Um, but History and Literature is the uh, undergraduate program only. Um, mm-hmm. And you may have known, if you were there 20 years ago, with Steve Beal. Yes, Steve there was a good you, friend. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, so he he is now the head of the Humanities Center. Excellent. Um, but he has been the director of, of history and literature in the past. And I think Lou Major was also there as a tutor um, yes, during he, that time period. I yeah, he he and I played basketball Friday mornings. There was a there used to be maybe still is a, a Friday morning or weekly game of graduates and visiting scholars and some of the younger professors would play. Oh wow. And uh yeah, Lou and Mike Vorenberg and uh, oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, yes, yeah, Steve, Steve played sometimes. Eric Hindrocker, Mark Peterson. Uh, well, tell Steve I said hi if you see him around campus sometime. Oh, I will. Uh, and I, I still recommend uh, Titanic books to people. Uh, his, his various books whenever he's got uh, got things that uh, whenever I have something that's related to that to teach. Oh, yeah. Well, He's wonderful. Yes. Now, you have uh, here a, a book that takes a different look at the war, and I've, we're almost up to our first break already, and I apologize for talking so long. Um, but let me just ask you, did you get into this topic by being interested in the Civil War first, or 
uh, was it more a, a cultural approach and then the war seemed like an interesting period to look at? I actually came into this project kind of through the back door of Southern environmental history um, because my first book, uh, which is called Trembling Earth, is a cultural history of the Okefenokee Swamp in southern Georgia and northern Florida. And when I was mucking around uh, in the Okefenokee, I kept noticing all of these ruins inside of it, uh, ruins of, of English forts, of Native American camps, um, of, you know, sort of rusting machinery from the lumber industry. And so I became interested in ruins in general as material artifacts, but also as indicative of a, a certain pattern of, of failure in the Okefenokee context, um, of people unable to really deal with that swamp um, in the long term. And so then I turned to to this project on ruins, and at first I thought it was going to be a book about ruins in the 19th century, 19th century America. Um, but I quickly figured out, thank goodness, that that would be a massive <laughs> undertaking. Um, and so I just asked myself, you know, at what moment uh, did ruins seem to proliferate in the American landscape? And the, the answer seemed obvious to me, which was the American Civil War. And so that's when I kind of turned to the Civil War and turned myself into a Civil War historian. Well, when we think of ruins, typically people imagine you know, the skeletons of buildings, uh, things that have burned, uh, been blown up. And uh, as you note, uh, leaping to your conclusion, there are not a lot of standing ruins from the Civil War, but there certainly were during the war. We're at our break time. We're going to take a short break and come back and uh, start talking about the cities that burned during the Civil War, some of them that you highlight in, in your first chapter. Uh, but we'll take a quick break now and come back. Uh, our guest today is Megan Kate Nelson. Her book is Ruin Nation, Destruction and the American Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. You don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take World Talk Radio on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Step up to the microphone. View the finalists right now on VoiceAmericaKids.tv. America's next great star is waiting to be discovered. Step up to the microphone is an exclusive presentation for VoiceAmerica.tv, where you can see and hear America's next top child star. The program is hosted by Voice America's own Cassie Frazier, and new episodes will be available every week exclusively at VoiceAmericaKids.tv. You can say you saw them at the beginning of their superstar career. Tune in to VoiceAmericaKids.tv. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. To Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Megan Kate Nelson, author of Ruin Nation, Destruction in the American Civil War. We're just starting to talk about some of the, uh, the creation of ruins, of physical ruins uh, during the war, of ruined landscapes. Uh, Megan, and we haven't met, I hope we can go by first names. Please, of course. Please call me Jerry. Um, uh, the uh, you start with the burning of Hampton, Virginia, which is not a moment known to a lot of Civil War historians in any detail. What happened at Hampton, and why did you choose that? 
Well, I chose Hampton. I mean, as, and as you can imagine, I had many, many possibilities <laughs> for yes. this chapter for case studies. Um, you know, six or seven really, really good ones, um, and five that I actually wrote, and then I narrowed it down to, to these three. And I wanted to begin with Hampton not only because it was chronologically first um, in taking place in the first summer of the war in August of 1861, but also because, again, you know, as you noted, not a lot of people know about it. And to me, it really crystallized these two very important issues that, that emerged in these first couple months of the war. And one of them was this kind of narrative of civilized warfare and this understanding of, of what actually constitutes um, warfare that is fought in, in some sort of, you know, if we can understand it to be in a civilized way. Um, what are the rules of engagement? Who do you attack? Who do you not attack? Um, at what times do you give notice? Um, and I thought that was really interesting. This enters a lot of conversations about ruins and destruction, um, particularly of cities and also of houses, um, which we'll talk about a little later. But Hampton also reveals that slavery and freedom was at the center of the war's kind of destructive and constructive projects, um, because this was the time when Benjamin Butler uh, was in charge of Fortress Monroe, and um, there was a great buildup of Union troops, and the Confederates decided to abandon Hampton in the face of this. And um, one of the, the reasons that, and one of the, the arguments that John Magruder was making is that you know, he was really worried that this was going to become, you know, a huge slave contraband camp, which, of course, then it did become, um, because he burned it down. Um, because Butler had already kind of taken in um, Mallory Baker and Townsend, the sort of three slaves who fled to Fortress Monroe in May of 1861 and started that whole discussion and, and Butler's definition of them as contrabands of war. And so I was really interested in the ways that all, you know, these thousands of fugitive slaves kind of turned the ruins of Hampton after Magruder and his men you know, basically destroyed the entire town, um, turned those ruins into their own space and a space of freedom. Um, and it was just this really evocative moment, which is why I wanted to start there. It, it's significant also uh, that this is one of the cities that is burned down by its defenders, or not even defenders, because uh, the Confederates have evacuated Hampton. It's right across from mm -hmm. Fortress Monroe. They can't hold on to it. So they actually have to go back and launch a raid to go in there and burn it and then leave. Uh, it, yeah. We don't see many other examples that I can think of offhand of, uh, of sides burning their own cities preemptively like that. Mm -hmm. Well, you see a couple. I mean, the most famous examples are Atlanta, um, mm -hmm. some defensive burning um, right before the abandonment of the city in September of 64, and then also in Richmond um, mm -hmm. in April of 65, uh, a sort of last-ditch effort uh, to destroy uh, war material before the, the Union could get at it. Um, but you're right. I mean, this was the first um, instance of that defensive burning that seemed to many observers, um, particularly northern observers, to be com completely gratuitous. <laughs> there was really, Butler kept saying, there, there was no reason. I don't know why they did this. This seems um, completely insane. Um, but it was perceived by southerners to be an act of patriotism and civilian sacrifice um, that would set a pattern for 
the rest of the war. But this is also another larger argument of the book, which is that both Northerners and Southerners took part in these destructive acts, um, which is not something that we usually think about. That's not a popular narrative, certainly in the South, <laughs> um, you know, where there's a lot of vilification of Sherman and, um, you know, Northern invaders and um, the North is the destroyer of the South. Um, so one of the arguments I'm making here is that Southerners had a hand in their own destruction as well. And, and that becomes uh, especially clear with the example of Chambersburg, uh, uh, Pennsylvania, which is, is somewhat more familiar to, to most uh, Civil War readers when uh, General Early's men hold the town for ransom uh, very briefly and then uh, set it on fire. Uh, how did that uh, play into this narrative? Well, I was interested in Chambersburg because it was this rare example of a northern town um, that was destroyed in the war, and again, that it was, um, you know, sort of the destruction was caused um, by Confederates. Um, and so the issue there became, what became clear is that um, there was this whole idea about revenge and about preemptive strikes um, and vengeance um, in warfare. And so here again, I think, we see this this discussion about what it means to to make war on one's enemy um, in a in a civilized or an uncivilized manner. Um, and what came along with that was the question of responsibility. And what I found really fascinating about the Chambersburg example is that the civilians living in Chambersburg, um, you know, in the in the days and weeks and months after um, after its firing you know, produced a lot of narratives of the destruction. They did a whole accounting, um, you know, formed a committee to, to assess the damage. Uh, and they didn't actually, I mean, they blamed Early and McCausland um, because they were the ones who actually did it. But they turned also um, to the northern uh, military that was supposed to be defending them um, in this, you know, I mean, everybody knew that this was, basically, along with the Shenandoah Valley, the sort of root of war um, between the North and the South. Um, and Confederates had been there before and threatened to, to burn the town before. Um, and so they made claims on the state of Pennsylvania and on the Union government um, to reimburse them for the damages because they had felt that they had been abandoned, basically, to the torch. Um, and I thought that was a really fascinating um, tension and debate that here, here are Northerners fighting amongst themselves about who was properly supposed to defend these cities that were in the kind of uh, borderlands of the Eastern um, theater. And the point about compensation is interesting because when we see a destruction today, um, you know, if, if today's tropical storm becomes worse, uh, if there's a tornado somewhere, we certainly feel sympathy for a victim standing in the ruins of their homes, but there's an assumption that uh, that everybody has some kind of insurance, and if, if, in addition, the government will provide various kinds of aid. But in the Civil War, when, when Hampton was burned by its own residents, partly, uh, they they were pretty much assured not to get anything back, that this really was their whole life going up in smoke. And that that, that adds to the... the, the uh, pain of what you're describing. 
Yes, indeed. And the the Hampton refugees, as they became known, um, benefited from philanthropic efforts on their behalf. Um, and they particularly benefited because this was the beginning of the war. And so this was the first town to be totally destroyed. And, and so um, Virginia residents really did galvanize um, and donate money um, for those who had, had abandoned the city and their property. And so they got some support um, in terms of that. Of course, that decreased <laughs> um, uh, quite radically uh, over the course of the war. And both the Union and the Confederacy had um, sort of elements in their written-out laws of warfare that, you know, this is, this is what warfare is. If you are in the path of an army and your house is destroyed or your business is destroyed, um, then you really have no recourse. Um, although the the, federal, the Union federal government, um, in the years after the war, did create the Southern Claims Commission and did um, compensate some Unionist Southerners um, and then some Northerners if their property had been destroyed in the middle of a war action. But for the most part, there was this idea that, you know, this is, this is how it goes. This is what war is. Yeah, which is actually true even with modern insurance policies. Acts of war are usually mm-hmm. not covered. Uh, with, with private insurers. Right. But when you say this is what war is, that points out another uh, thread running through your book is the notion of the rules of war. You talk about uh, Halleck's mm-hmm. uh, text and, and the Lieber Code mm-hmm. that set the, the rules of war for the Union. Uh, did these burnings fall within what people thought of as the, the rules of war at that time? They did, and Chambersburg is an interesting example in that case because retaliation and also preemptive strikes were considered to be legitimate acts of warfare, even though, if you think about it logically, it creates this never-ending cycle right, of destruction um, with everyone taking revenge um, upon everybody else or trying to prevent them from doing something and thereby creating this cycle of revenge. Um, so... What I discovered in reading through all of these laws of warfare and then reading through the the letters and diaries and battle reports um, where soldiers were articulating their response to them, everybody agreed that there are certain boundaries that you should not cross, but there were times in which you would need to cross them as a war necessity. And so the, the, laws of, the laws of warfare were there, and they outlined some specifics. You were not supposed to make war on women and children and old men, and you were you know, supposed to give a certain amount of notification before you laid siege to a city, things like that. And you know, there were certain groups that were considered noncombatants. Um, but in these situations where armies are on the move or in the case of um, deliberate hard war, campaigns like Sherman's and Sheridan's, those definitions of non-combatants and private property just sort of went out the window. Um, And there was a lot of debate about it and a lot of uh, anger, um, as you can imagine, on the part of the people whose whose property was destroyed. Um, But most um, soldiers and generals and politicians just sort of pointed to the um, the articulated laws of warfare, which always made room for military necessity, which could be used to justify any act, really, of destruction. Well, th- this brings us to the, the second of your four chapters where you talk about the burning of private houses, which 
the laws of war don't allow uh, unless there is some extenuating circumstance. Uh, if a house needs to be cleared away from the field of fire on a battlefield, if there's a, a sharpshooter firing from a house, uh, there are plenty of reasons why you can destroy a house uh, legally. But as you point out, there are plenty of uh, plenty of houses destroyed during the Civil War for other reasons. Uh, this chapter I found very interesting because you you point out that it's not just it's not burning a house is more than just burning a house. It has a great deal of, of cultural significance. It's breaking down uh, barriers of privacy. It's it's violating gender roles or at least gender prerogatives by uh, opening a house that is the woman's uh, sphere uh, to violent male action. Uh, there were times reading this that, uh, uh, well, I wrote in my notes here, it says a violation of gendered privacy space. And in my notes I write, it's written as if that's a bad thing. Um, why did Union soldiers, and, and most of the examples here are of Union soldiers destroying houses, mm -hmm. did they just wantonly destroy these houses, or were there justifications for doing it? It was usually not wanton. Um, usually, you know, as, as you were saying before, often it was, um, again, part of military necessity um, if they had to go in and, and clear out um, any sharpshooters or guerrillas that were in there. Sometimes houses were just in the middle of battlefields. Um, sometimes they were in cities that were under siege and, you know, artillerists couldn't really control um, where their guns were firing shot and shell, um, you know, no matter of kind of 50 or 100 feet um, sometimes. So some of it was accidental. Um, other times, again, we have the situation of revenge here. Um, Northern soldiers took... Uh, great uh, pleasure in uh, ransacking or destroying the houses of noted Confederates um, or their relatives. Uh, and, you know, so if you were related to Robert E. Lee uh, and you lived in Virginia in the, the path of the Union Army, pretty much you were going to lose <laughs> what you had, um, unless you got some sort of special dispensation and a guard. Um, and there was a lot of that. I mean, the soldiers did not burn every house that they came across. Um, and so the reasons that they did what they did were usually in a larger context. Um, a lot of houses were destroyed in the burning of Columbia, um, which I discuss in Chapter 1 and then also in Chapter 2, because so many private homes were sort of intermixed um, with businesses in that particular city. Um, and for Union soldiers also, it was, it was an act of, of power. Um, you know, they were, and, and war is about destroying, and it is also about exerting power and control. And so soldier, soldiers would kind of get whipped up into a frenzy in situations like Columbia and, and also the march um, through South Carolina in particular. Um, and officers couldn't control them. Sometimes officers took part, um, and it really didn't matter what commands had been issued. Um, they just acted kind of almost, in some cases, in a mob type of mentality. Um, also, I don't discuss it too much here in the book, but I've also written another piece for the Weirding the War volume that came out with the mm -hmm. University of Georgia Press about um, pleasure-taking in destruction, and that there's actual... Um, chemical reasons in your brain for why you enjoy 
destroying something <laughs> and watching things be destroyed. Um, and, you know, historians get a little, a little anxious about any of those kind of biological explanations. Um, but there was a kind of, of thrill that some soldiers found um, in these acts where they would either burn a house down or they would ransack uh, its interiors. I mean, that makes sense. And, and the argument about war being uh, part, of, part of what war is, is this exertion of power. Um, what struck me again as I was reading the chapter was that the context of this was who was fighting who and what they were fighting about, and that the owners of these homes in the South had, uh, and you, you, you describe this at least briefly in this chapter, had freely violated uh, privacy spaces and indeed the very bodies of their, their slaves for the last 200 years. Mm -hmm. And they had exerted and enjoyed that kind of power, uh, and now it was being turned on them. And the, the degree of sympathy one might feel for them is, is somewhat mitigated by that. Uh, when, I, when I finished the chapter, I, I also went back and just observed that many of the sources you cite showing the outrage uh, are contemporary Southern sources, who of course were outraged. Uh, and I've, I thought, I had to review and think carefully, is, is this just... Uh, just the matter of the material that you've chosen to look at. But then I went back and looked at chapter one again, and I realized the, the city's burned. Hampton's burned by Confederates. Chambersburg is burned by Confederates. And uh, Columbia is burned by a combination of Confederates and Yankees who don't try to put it out. Mm -hmm. uh, so if I were a s member of the Sons of Confederate Veterans in Kingston, <laughs> North Carolina, not far from here, I might be outraged at chapter one, uh, but if I read just chapter two by itself, I might think that the Sons of Confederate Veterans would take heart uh, from it, uh, not certainly saying that that was your intent or opinion, but it, it struck me that there's an argument to be made about the civic responsibility of the, uh, of the Southern civilians who, who put themselves in harm's way by, by seceding. Uh, and and that the the damage done to them is is not can be analyzed certainly in terms of the the the, the biological response or other reasons, but uh, uh, but also needs to be looked at in that overall context. Think about that if you would for a minute. I'll, I'll give you a moment to shape a response because we've got time to another break already. So we're going to take a short break. I'm talking today with Megan Kate Nelson, author of Ruin Nation, Destruction in the American Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. 
The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Megan Kate Nelson, author of Ruined Nation, Destruction in the American Civil War. We've been talking about the uh, burning of cities, the burning of houses, the things that take place ancillary to warfare on the battlefield, but that shaped the uh, both the physical and the psychic landscape of uh, the Civil War. And in our last segment, we were talking about the destruction of houses, private houses, mostly by northern soldiers, and the the uh, the obviously outraged response of Southerners, not just to the physical destruction, but to the violation of domestic privacy, the breaking down civilian military barriers. Um, Megan, I, th- I think one reason that chapter struck me so strongly was uh, a, a personal story, which I'll tell very briefly. When uh, my father served in the Second World War and never told war stories, and, and he was an 18-year-old draftee late in the war, and I don't know that he had a great number of them, but one time, and one time only, he mentioned being quartered in Germany after the war, occupying a village, and the troops were quartered in private houses. And he was in a house in which uh, the woman asked if her son could sleep in the bed that was available so the soldiers could sleep on the floor. And my father was outraged, thinking he had traveled thousands of miles away from his bed and his mother uh, because you people let Hitler take power and start this war and put us to all this danger and difficulty. And now you want to have some comfort and I'll sleep on the floor. I don't think so. Uh, and he was not the kind of person who would turn someone out of a bed, uh, the rest of his life. He was incredibly generous and open, but in the context of who had started this war and who had caused this, uh, it was an outrageous demand, uh, to, to maintain respect for, for traditional privacy and civility and domesticity under these conditions. You can't, you can't make those claims after you've put people to, to risking their lives to, to stop your tyranny. Uh, so, uh, your, your chapter struck me deeply, I'll, I'll put it that way. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think what you're identifying is clearly there. I mean, Union soldiers did see um, civilians, particularly women, um, as complicit. Uh, in secession um, and in support, you know, supporting uh, their soldiers as one one would do, um, and this was the whole basis, of course, of of at least Sherman's um, theory of of hard war. Um, mm-hmm. That this is how you defeat a people because it's the entire people. It's not just the army um, that brings war into the land, and. 
Um, and that was his justification, of course, um, for the destruction of property, um, both private and public. And, and Union soldiers, you do see them discussing this a bit in their, their letters and their diaries, where they, they may feel bad, they may not feel bad, um, but it was clear that Southerners brought this upon themselves. And especially the soldiers um, who burned their way through South Carolina felt that way. I mean, that state had such a reputation as the cradle of secession, um, you know, going back <laughs> for 30 years. And so they, you know, especially um, went at their destructive acts um, with a, a, a sense of purpose. And, and I think with, for many of them, a sense of justification um, and, and that this was actually not an act of uncivilized warfare because, um, you know, the women and the families were just as much a part of this Confederate war effort as the soldiers in the Army. Now, a part of the, another victim of war, and one who didn't start the war and had nothing to do with starting the war or any war, uh, was the the inanimate physical landscape. Uh, in your, your third chapter, you talk about uh, trees. Yeah. And, and that, that's, I don't know that I've ever read a chapter or anything like that. Um, talk about the tree holocaust that was the Civil War. Well, this was, you know, the turn, I think when we think about um, ruins, we tend to think about architectural ruins, about cities and, and houses. And so that's where I started with this project. When, But when I began reading through the records, it struck me really forcibly that there's all this damage being done to the landscape and in a lot of different kinds of ways. And um, my friend and colleague Lisa Brady has talked about the destruction of croplands and the, um, you know, things like digging canals um, and reshaping the land uh, in her book, um, War Upon the Land. And um, But no one had really talked about trees before. And so I became interested in how soldiers use them. And when I started to look, I mean, they are just, they're everywhere. They're in soldiers' diaries and letters everywhere. They're in visual culture. Um, and soldiers really cut down trees and use them to build things and then also burn them on the march and in camp and, in, in, and then they destroyed them in battle as sort of, um, you know, kind of casualties. Uh, of war, but also um, because they were building fortifications. And when I started adding all of this up, you know, the fact that they built roads and bridges out of local trees um, often, although they did get um, some lumber from northern forests as well, and that's something that I didn't have a chance to research fully, was the toll that the war took on northern forests that were not actually in the line of fire or around um, you know, the most kind of well-trodden, um, the, the, well-trod theaters of, of war. But, um, you know, they, they cut down trees to clear their paths. They cut down trees to obstruct the paths of the enemy. Um, they threw logs into rivers. Um, and then when they went into camp, they built, they built what are, were functionally kind of little towns and little cities, um, with log cabins and chapels and opera houses and theaters and stables and kitchens and and they would you know build roadways and sidewalks <laughs> um, and and then you know each each uh, mess each sort of group of of um, you know three or four men would build a fire at least three times a day to cook their food and to keep warm um, and this was happening every day throughout the year in every theater um, and. You know, then in battle, 
the construction of earthworks in particular, which became more and more common and larger and larger as the war went on, and then just the the you know collateral damage of trees being hit with shot and shell and their um, limbs being sheared off. Pretty much the the estimate that I make in the chapter, which I think is actually low, is that two million trees um, were destroyed. Um, and by soldiers on the march and in camp, and about 25,000 were killed outright in battle. I think actually it might be more than, I think it may be two or three times that number. Mm. That's a very conservative <laughs> estimate. Um, but that's kind of amazing to think about. And, and I think what it also reveals is this other larger argument of the book, which is that um, war is about destruction, but it's also about creation that soldiers were building a landscape of war um, in order to wage it, um, and they were using wood to do it. And, and that does tie in throughout the book, and you talk about the, the burning. You also show how these cities uh, were replaced, uh, were rebuilt uh, almost immediately, and how many of the, the houses that are destroyed are quickly rebuilt. Uh, in your last chapter, when you talk about uh, human ruins, uh, you, you talk about the the war wounds the amputees, but how their limbs are replaced by, by prosthetics. Uh, and, of, of course, all these ruins disappear uh, over time. Uh, the, uh, uh, the battlefields today, some of them have more trees than they did in 1861. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, those happen. I wanted to ask you... Uh, about an article in the Journal of the Civil War Era, uh, the, the one UNC Press uh, publishes from, from Penn State, mm-hmm. that just came out this week, actually since you and I set up this show, there's a review essay uh, that posits the idea that there's a, a, a rebirth of revisionism taking place in Civil War studies, capital R revisionism, like, like uh, 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 a uh, Randall and uh, Craven, the others of the pre-World War II generation, when they argued that the Civil War was a, a great blunder and unnecessary, uh, and uh, they, they were bitterly anti-war, uh, based partly on their experience of the First World War. And this this author argues that we're seeing a return to that, uh, and a book like yours could conceivably be put into that uh, uh into that mode in that it talks about destruction, that it does show what, what is one of the clearly negative sides of the war. Uh, although that's, that's too facile because as you said, it, it, you also argue that the creation simultaneously results from this. Um, but I thought the review essay was interesting because it does seem to put uh, accurately uh, a term on what is going on, that there are more, er, an increasing number of books that look at the negative sides of the Civil War, uh, perhaps as a welcome antidote to the kind of reenactor mentality that it was all a lot of fun, mm-hmm. and uh, and say it's all not good, which leaves out the political balance of what it, the war accomplished. Uh, that's sort of a long-winded question slash statement, but uh, where do you, having evaluated all this destruction? Do you come out uh, with a view that the war was uh, more destructive than it was worth? Well, I mean, to to make that calculation, I think you have to 
if we're, we're talking about whether or not war is worth it, then we're talking about all of the, the different outcomes, the saving of the Union, um, emancipation of four million people, um, you know, the sort of the test that, that Lincoln was talking about, about whether a society such as ours can ex- exist. Um, and, you know, those are all, I think, worthy outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I think, and I'm not sure, is this, is this Gary's piece? Uh, no, uh, Yale Sternhell, who I'm oh, not familiar yeah, with. Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so, and Yale's a little bit, her book, Roots of War, which is excellent, by the way, um, you know, engages with this a little bit, but, um, you know, sort of my work, and then also I think Jim Downs's Sick from Freedom, mm-hmm. um, you know, a couple other books that are looking, and, and I'm not sure if, if David Blight actually coined this term, but when we were all in Gettysburg in, the, in March, he described it as dark history. Mm-hmm. And uh, I like that term because um, it does show you uh, the dark side of war. And I, think, and I think this is something we need to reckon with because we need to acknowledge um, that war can create good, um, that, um, you know, it often... Um, is waged kind of for larger um, goals and purposes that turn out to, to benefit humankind. Um, but that, that war is about killing people and about destroying property, and that, that is some dark stuff. And we have to reckon with those costs, I think, in order to fully appreciate um, what war produces that is good. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, that absolutely. I, I could not agree more. I think that's a very eloquent statement of the balance that needs to be drawn. And I don't think there's any question you can find Civil War enthusiasts who draw it far too lightly and, and enjoy the, uh, the nostalgia and romanticism of it. But I, it concerns me that you can find books. I, I would say uh, Harry Stout's book is, pro- in my view, the worst example of one that points up all the costs and then uh, is morally uh, unsustainable in, in, in not reckoning with uh, whether there was any benefit, uh, the ones you described, emancipation and union, whether what balance they play in it. Uh, of course, war is not healthy for children and other living things. Who would argue that? Uh, but, but to... Uh, but to fail to draw a careful balance, that, that's a historian's duty, it seems to me. Right, right. So, well, I'm, I'm lecturing uh, to, to you, uh, which I, <laughs> for which I apologize. Uh, but your book was one of the most stimulating ones I've, I've read in, in a very long time. And I know oh, every listener of the show will want to read it and uh, view it for uh, him or herself and think about Ruined Nation, Destruction in the American Civil War by Megan Kate Nelson. Megan, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thanks, Jerry. Thanks so much for having me. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.